Well, as you find your seats, brethren, find in your Bibles, Revelation 18. Now, for you uh, who've been here over the last several weeks, know that chapters 17 to 19 comprise the sixth of seven cycles that describe the time between the first and second comings of Jesus. If we were to take our time and read straight through one of the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you'll find that it's repetitious. It's telling the same things over and over again in cycles. Well, this is exactly what John does as a prophet of sorts. He gives us the same time frame and describes the same events variously seven times in the book of Revelation. And so we're right in the middle of six, uh, the sixth of seven cycles that describe the time between the first and second comings of Christ. And in particular, chapters 17 and 18 have Babylon as their main theme. Whereas, we'll see God willing next week, chapter 19 describes the bride and groom on that final day. So we'll come again next week. Well, we'll see this week too, but next week especially, the last day, the day of judgment. We've seen that already five times. This is the sixth time. And we're going to see it a seventh time when we come to the final cycle in chapters 20 to 22. Now, if you remember last week, by Babylon is meant this world. Fallen humanity, controlled by Satan, and in rebellion to God. She's described, that is Babylon, she's described as a great city and as an immoral woman or a harlot. Simon Kistemaker said, Babylon is the capital of the entire world, the center of the universal kingdom of darkness. It's a symbol of the whole world hostile toward God and his Christ. So last week we saw something of Babylon described, and this week we're going to see her fall. And in fact, I want to limit, I want to read verses 1 to 8 and limit our focus to those eight verses, though I also want to dip into verses 9 to 19, or perhaps 20, as it has relation upon verses 1 to 8, because it's basically repetitions and saying the same things in verses 9 and following, as we find in verses 1 to 8. And that way, we don't have to read the whole chapter, uh, but it will suffice in a loose survey or exposition of the chapter. And then we'll just come, God willing, to 19 next week. But I want to suggest that we find basically two things in these eight verses. In verses 1 to 3, we find a graphic prophecy, and that is a prophecy of the fall of Babylon. And uh, it's described very graphically, as we'll see in the first three verses. You find it also alluded to in verses 4 to 8. But in verses 9 and following, you have it even more elaborated upon or described. And then in verses 4 to 8, we find something of an application. I've called it here an urgent exhortation. And that's really found in verse 4, but the verses that follow, 5 to 8, kind of shed a little light. Or um, they add a little weight to the urgency 
of the exhortation. So we'll look at it under those two headings in verses 1 to 3, a graphic prophecy, and then secondly in verses 4 to 8, an urgent exhortation, and as, as I've said, dipping into verses 9 and following as it has relation, as those verses have relation to those two headings. Verse 1, after these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. Verse 4, and then we have this somewhat transition to an exhortation. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her just as she rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works. In the cup which she has mixed, mix double for her. In the measure that she has glorified herself, and lived luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen, and am no widow, and will not see sorrow. Therefore her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. Now keep in mind that uh, in the book of Revelation and in other places in the New Testament, Babylon is symbolic for this world. Remember that there was a literal Babylon in the Old Testament. And that started in Genesis 10 and 11 with the city and tower of Babel. And then, of course, you find it in the prophets, especially as God's arch arch enemy. And uh, we'll, we, we will look at some texts in the Old Testament here in a moment. But you may not know this, but if you took time to study it and read it and think about these eight verses especially, you'll find that... These eight verses have as their backdrop both the tower and city of Babel as well as that wicked city of Babylon in the Old Testament. We're going to see that uh, the way in which God describes her destruction is borrowed right out of Isaiah and Jeremiah that had reference originally to the destruction of that wicked nation. We find in... uh, Verse 5, an allusion to the Tower of Babel. For her sins have reached to heaven. Remember, she, she built a tower that reached to heaven because the um, inhabitants of the city, mankind as, as a whole, had rebelled against God. And so just as God judged Babylon of the Old Testament, here he's going to judge the Babylon of the New Testament or this wicked, godless world. So we find first a graphic prophecy. 
Verse 2. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. He's here anticipating the fall. Or this is spoken by way of prophecy. Because when it was written 2,000 years ago, the world hadn't been judged yet. This is foretelling something that will happen in the last day. It's describing an event that will take place when Christ returns. In other words, this judgment, brethren, is absolutely certain. And the reason for the fall, at least in part, is found in verse 3. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. Babylon the harlot has enticed the members of this world to worship the created in place of the creator. Because if you remember last week, we spent some time showing by fornication here is meant spiritual and moral fornication or idolatry. And of course, idolatry refers to the worship of anything alongside or before God. In fact, it's a violation of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me or more literally alongside me. Not only are you forbidden to worship anything or anyone before God, but not but neither are you allowed to worship them equal to God or alongside God. You can't have anything alongside God and you can't have anything before God. Now obviously this forbids all false religions that have false gods. Seven-day Adventists, for example, Mormonism, Islam, Hinduism, Roman Catholicism, all of those and every other cult or false religion is condemned or forbidden by the first commandment. But surely, brethren, we know idolatry is much more than this. It's placing any created thing as our chief good and or ultimate love. Because it's easy, isn't it, to say, well, we've never broken the first commandment. We're not idolaters. We haven't committed fornication, spiritual and mortal fornication with this harlot. Because we don't have physical idols in our houses. We don't worship false gods like the God of Islam. But the question is, Have we elevated any created thing to be before God or alongside God? That's the question tonight. Physical fornication, think of it like this. Physical fornication is giving to another something that's not theirs. And it's taking something that's not yours, right? That's 
some something of uh, of of the problems with physical fornication. The spiritual fornication is giving to the world all that's created, something that doesn't belong to the world. And what is it that doesn't belong to the world? Well, it's fundamentally our ultimate service and supreme love. It's serving the creator or uh, the created above the creator. Or maybe we can just make it as simple as this to kind of reduce it down to a short sentence. It's giving the world, and by world I mean anything and everything created in distinction from God the creator. It's giving the world your whole heart. Right? Because we're to give our whole heart to who? God. We're to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. So we're not to give our heart, our whole heart, to any created thing. Now, if, if, we keep, if we keep with that imagery or illustration, it's okay to give a part of our heart. to. The, it's okay to love our wife and our children and, and those things. In fact, we're commanded to, aren't we? We're commanded to love our, our wives and our husbands and children and our parents. But we're nowhere commanded, in fact, we're everywhere, everywhere forbidden to love them supremely. That's the point here. Or to stick with the imagery, to give them our whole heart. Now we use that imagery sometimes, or that language, and I'm not saying it's bad per se, if you're using it in a qualified sense. You might say to your wife, I, I love you with all my heart. And, and we know what you mean by that. But in a strict and technical sense, brethren, you're not to love anybody or anything with all of your heart except God because he alone is worthy. So to love anything alongside God or more than God is idolatry. And that's what this passage calls fornication. And this is why God's judgment is coming upon the world because of her fornication. She's committed fornication. The inhabitants of the world. Uh, in verse 3, there's three categories of people. There's all nations. There's the kings and the merchants. That's just another way of saying all men. All men have committed fornication with this harlot. Babylon the whore. And because of it, judgment's coming. Now, just for example, look ahead to verse 14. The fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you. This is a description of what the world, the members of the world, will say and do in that day of judgment. Okay, they're going to mourn and they're going to weep, verse 15. But notice why, verse 14, the fruit that your soul longed for. And by fruit is meant those things mentioned in the previous verses. Just very quickly look back up. Gold, verse 12, silver, precious stones, pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet, every ivory, uh, precious wood, bronze, verse 13, cinnamon, incense, oil, frankincense, wine, flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots, bodies and the souls of men, brethren. It means everything this world has, every created thing. That's what their soul longed for. 
or to keep it with our imagery, that's what received their whole hearts. Those are the things that they gave their whole hearts to. That's, in essence, what this passage is calling fornication. And now notice the next phrase in verse 14. Uh, The fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you. This is, again, a reference to the day of judgment. All of their, quote, lovers, this world, all the things that they lived for is now taken from them. And all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you shall find them no more at all. Brother, what a... What a tragic text. It's saying that if you live for the things of this world, one day all of the things of the world that you gave your heart to will be taken from you. For in one hour such great riches came to nothing, verse 17. And they cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, verse 18, saying, What is like this great city? And they threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth. For in one hour she's made desolate. It's talking about the destruction of the world when Jesus comes back. And so their souls longed for these things. They desired them above all else. They lived for them and would now eternally be denied them. Right? Now let me give you a couple of texts, or maybe just one text, to kind of bend the nail back on what's meant here by uh, fornication. Uh, Look at Jesus' words in Matthew 6. And notice verse 24. No one can serve two masters... For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon means riches or wealth. It's just, if you go back to that passage we just read in chapter 18, when it lists all the things of this world, silver, gold, ivory, oil, and and houses, and and all of that, that, that's what's meant by mammon. So when Jesus says no one can serve two masters, what he means is no one can serve two masters supremely. That's what he means. You can't have, you can't give all of your heart to two things because it's impossible mathematically. I mean, if you give all of your heart to the, to the, to the, to the world, then you can't give all of your heart to God. If you give all of your heart to God, then you can't give all of your heart to the world or if you if you if you take God as your greatest good then you can't take the world as your greatest good if you pledge God as your as your supreme delight then you can't pledge that this world is your supreme delight you see the point you cannot serve God and 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 we could just even paraphrase it to, to harmonize it with Revelation and Babylon You cannot serve God and Babylon, right? That's what it's saying. Now, you find the same thing, of course. We won't turn there. Uh, Matthew 10, 37. 
Jesus says that you can't love your wife or your family or anybody more than him, right? He has to be supreme. But I do want to turn you to one more text, and that's in the first chapter of Romans. And look at 24 and 5. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the loss of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. So God gave them up to sexual deviancy, to immorality, wickedness of, of, of a, of a, of a, of a um, dark kind. But notice why. Verse 25. <clears throat> because they exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's the same thing. They worship the created. What is meant by the created? Well, it does mean, they, it says earlier, that they fashioned um, into idols, uh, uh, animals, um, and they worship those animals. But the point being is that they just worship the created rather than the creator. Verse 23 is what I was referring to. So if you, but you can just take here, can't you, the by a creature, you can just, again, insert into that phrase creature all of the things back in Revelation 18, that all the things of this world. Put very simply, brethren, those who commit fornication with Babylon serve, that is worship, the temporal pleasures of this life as their supreme delight slash joy. So there's only two types of people, right? There's those who've, well, I mean, the book of Revelation over and again, it's been telling us there's two types of people. There's some who have God's seal and name on their forehead, and then there's the other one who has the seal of the beast on their forehead and hand. There's those who serve God, and then there's those who serve mammon. There's, God, there's those who are faithful to God, and then there's those who commit fornication with Babylon. And there's really no third option, is there? So those who are being judged, this, the, this prophecy describes those being judged as those who have committed fornication with the woman. All right, that's a, that's, a, that's a prophecy. Now at verse 4, we find an urgent exhortation back in Revelation 18. Where it's almost as if uh, the author, if, if you want to look at it as John or more, more uh, accurately God, wants to make an application beginning first with John's generation and then, of course, carrying onward to all generations. And that application or exhortation is found in verse 4. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. So this isn't an exhortation that's to be understood of that last generation when Jesus comes back. Certainly that's true of them as well. 
but it's intended to be true of John's generation. It's something that was present for John. And it's intended to be present for everybody who subsequently follows John's generation. In other words, this isn't a warning for those alive at Christ's coming merely, but for every generation until then, beginning with John's. William Hendrickson said, the admonition to leave Babylon is addressed to God's people in all ages. From this fact, it also appears that Babylon is not only the city of the end time, it is the world as center of seduction in all ages. Right? Because if if all of God's people, beginning with John's generation, is called out of her, out of Babylon, then of necessity, Babylon is something that exists in every generation. And uh, let me, in closing, suggest two things about this exhortation. First, its meaning. What exactly does it mean? And then its motives, because we'll see that as uh, the Bible almost always does, it doesn't just tell us to do, do something, but it typically gives us reasons why. All right? The meaning is found in these first four words. Come out of her. What does this mean? Well, obviously, in the first place, it's not a call to physically leave the world. Right? Nobody leaves this world physically un until we die. But fundamentally, it means do not think or act like those who are committing spiritual fornication with Babylon. Right? Come out of her. Don't be, we've already defined how those who are committing fornication with Babylon are acting. They've elevated the created above and beyond the creator. They're serving mammon as opposed to God. They've given the world, the created, sinful things and, and not even sinful things. Just the whole world, all created things. They've given her their whole hearts. And that renders even lawful things sinful. Because they've elevated them to a place that they were never intended to be, right? That's what Jesus meant. You have to love me more than mother, father, etc. And so the world thinks as if there's no God or heaven or hell. And it acts as if there's no God, heaven, or hell. And so when we're exhorted to come out of her, we're exhorted to not think like her or act like her. Brethren, that's what it means. Come out of her. Don't think like her. Don't act like her. Don't live for anything more than God. Don't elevate anything as more important than God. Don't delight in or desire anything more than God. That's 
what it means to come out of her. You have really a sister uh, uh, exhortation in that famous one in uh, 1 John 2, 15. Do not love the world, right? It's the same thing. Do not love the world. And then he says, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the, the love of the Father is not, in him, is not in him. Remember, Jesus says you can only love supremely one thing. Right? You can only give your heart, your whole heart, to one object, either God or the world. And that's what he's saying. If, if you love the world, that means you've given your heart to the world. And, and then if you've given your heart to the world, that means that God's love isn't in you. And you don't have any love by inference for him. For all that's in the world, and then he goes on to say the lust of the flesh, and I take by lust of the flesh to mean sinful things, right? And then the other things, the lust of the eyes, I don't see that as necessarily a, a, a lusting for sinful things, but it's lusting for lawful things sinfully. Which basically puts it as a sinful thing. And then the pride of life. And then he says, these are not of the Father, but are of the world. And so the meaning of the exhortation, come out of her, doesn't mean to come out of her physically, but come out of her spiritually and morally. Because Jesus said, I, I ask, remember when he was praying to his father in John 17, I don't ask, Father, that you would take them out of the world physically, but that you would keep them from giving their hearts uh, supremely to the world. That's a, a paraphrase of what he said. And so, don't desire sinful things. <clears throat> Be content with material things. And love and cherish spiritual and eternal things for mostly. I, I think that's the best way to define what he means. Or to put it simply, in the most bare bones way, don't give all of your heart or don't give your whole heart to any one or thing other than God. Okay, that's what this means. Come out of her. Now the motives. Look at uh, the verse. There's three of them. The last two are, are connected, but I'm going to divide them into three. Come out of her, here's the first motive, my people. He reminds them of, of their identity. Last you share in her sins, he reminds them of their call to be pure. And last you receive of her plagues. And that's a reminder of the world's doom. So the first two have more so to do with us, our identity, our purity, and then the third, her doom or her destiny, if you want to put wise at the end of all three. All right, notice first motive, our identity. Come out of her, my people. The my in the, in the New King James isn't, trans, isn't uh, capitalized because the, the translators are thinking that it's still the words of the angel. But if it's the words of the angel or if it's directly God, Either way, it's most evident that the my ought to be capitalized. 
Because either the angel is speaking in the name of God, and that happens all the time, right? God speaks. He speaks himself through the prophet, or else it's him speaking himself in verse 4, and then the angel speaks for God in verse 5. But either way, I think we all can agree that the my, because we only belong to him, brother, we don't belong to some angel. That would defeat the whole point of the whole entire passage. Come out of her, my people. Brother, that, you it's easy to skip over that as an incentive, isn't it? Two little words. Come out of her, my people. I've elected you. I've redeemed you. I've called you. I've adopted you. You're mine. Now, you can think of many texts, can't you? I think the first one that comes to my mind is 1 Corinthians 6, where we're exhorted to live pure because our bodies are not our own, but they've been purchased. Because we're not our own, but we've been bought body and soul. But there's another text, not 1 Corinthians 6, but you might also think of this one, 2 Corinthians 6, that comes probably... um, even more fully to mind. And the reason is because, as we'll see here, it continues that same imagery. Verse 17. 2 Corinthians six seventeen. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Now that's a quotation from Isaiah 52, 11. And in Isaiah 52, 11, it had reference to them physically coming out of Babylon and not carrying with him any of the remains of that corrupt, wicked city because judgment was falling upon it. So he's saying, come out from it. Well, he goes on to say, uh, and do not touch what is unclean, right? Don't bring any of the remnants with you. Leave it in total. Physically, spiritually, mentally, leave it. And then he says at the end of verse 17, and I will receive you. Okay, and then he quotes, Paul quotes 2 Samuel 7, 14, which is actually that that promise that God made to David that we call the Davidic covenant. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Okay. So the Corinthians are messed up and uh, Paul is rebuking them and he exhorts them to come out from among them and be separate. Okay, so in the original context, come out of physical Babylon. In this context, uh, 2 Corinthians 6, spiritual or moral Babylon. Right, that's what he's telling them to come out of. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Okay, but the motive that he gives them to do so is my point. Uh, and I will receive you and I will be a father to you. Okay, so if remember that this is a, a, a passage given to the professing church at Corinth. And the professing church at Corinth had true Christians and it likely had false Christians or hypocrites. So this text comes to them as a professing church as professing believers. And if they were true Christians, they were to repent and stop thinking like the world, stop acting like the world, and when they did, they would have a a renewed sense of their adoption. I think that's what it means. I will receive you as sons, verse 18. 
In other words, you shall know the joys of your adoption that you've lost because of your sins. Or else, if they were hypocrites and they came out for the first time from the world and they repented of their sins and believed in Jesus, then they would be for the first time sons, wouldn't they? But brethren, just apply it as I think it, as you read through it, the first thing that comes to mind is this is an exhortation to Christians. Don't commit spiritual or moral fornication with the world and I will receive you and I will renew within you a sense of your adoption. Brethren, this is why I think we find in our text that God says, or our Savior says, come out of her, my people. Brethren, this is the first motive, and it's a very beautiful one, isn't it? For us to come out, come out of her. Come out of her. Don't give your heart to the world. Don't give your life to the world. Give it to God. And here's why. Because you're his. That's your identity. Secondly, our purity. Lest you share in her sins. This word share is the same word that's translated fellowship. So he's saying unless you have fellowship with her deeds. Unless you share in her deeds. It sounds similar, doesn't it, to Ephesians 5.11. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Do not share in or with the unfruitful works of darkness. In other words, because you're mine, I've, I've purchased you, and I've called you out of the world, then you need to live accordingly. I think that's the idea here. Not only has he adopted us and made us uh, uh, his, but he's called us to act properly or becoming a son or a daughter of his. So you have our identity, our purity, and then thirdly, her destiny. Unless you receive of her plagues. Now the plagues here, of course, is meant by plagues here is meant the judgments before mentioned. Right? We saw the seven, was it seven plagues? Yeah, the seven bowls of wrath, the seven plagues. It was the judgments of God. So keep in mind that as you find it back in 2 Corinthians 6, so you find it here in Revelation 18, that this exhortation comes to the professing people of God. And the professing people of God is always a mixed People. It's mixed with Christians and hypocrites. Thus, those who refuse to come out of Babylon and or choose to return to Babylon prove they never really left it. Right? I mean, if you go back to, um, to that verse in, in 1 John 2, 19, they left us because they were never really of us. The exhortation came to them to come out. You're, you're, you're being intoxicated by this woman. Come out. And they refused to come out. And 
they not only refused to come out, but they actually went back in. And John says that's evident, that's proof evident that they were never of us. Even though they had made a profession of being among us, they were already likely baptized members and possibly even teachers, and yet they were never Christians. Brother, what a tragic thought. You could be a member of a church and a preacher in a church and not be Christian? Well, that's exactly what happened in 1 John 2.19, and the warning here includes that. But I think it's also this, and I even suggest to you that this is predominantly what we have here. That same warning comes to hypocrites. It's a mixed crowd. It comes to hypocrites. And it says, if you go back into the world, you'll, you'll be judged with the world. That's what it says. That's exactly what it says. And that warning that's given to the mixed people of God, it comes to the true child of God. And it basically says this. How can I go back to a world that I was redeemed from by the blood of Jesus? How can I go back to a world that I know is going to be judged by God when Jesus comes back? that's That's a lawful way of thinking. Why would I want to go back to a world? Why would I want to return to her, my former, my former, uh, girlfriend, this world, when I know that she's already doomed to eternal death. That's why I think it starts by saying, fallen is Babylon. Fallen is the great woman. Look, this lady is going to die. She's going to be judged. Why go back to her? It doesn't make any sense. Let me show you this from a couple of texts that I think will shed light on it in, 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 in the last few minutes we have. Very quickly, go back to a few verses in Jeremiah. Um, chapter 51. Now, this chapter is one of the chapters because, remember, it's, it's reciprocal. There are cycles. I don't know how many cycles there are in Jeremiah. I wouldn't be surprised if there wasn't seven. Same with Isaiah. One of these days, somebody should do that as a dissertation and try to sort that out. But this is just one of those cycles where you have the destruction of, the, of, of this wicked, uh, literal city of Babylon. I will punish Babylon. This is what's going on in chapter 51. And uh, notice back, let's start with verse 6. Flee from the midst of Babylon and everyone save his life. Do not be cut off in her iniquity, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. He shall recompense her. Now, if we kept reading in ver- uh, the, the, the exhortation to, to come out of her in Revelation 18, 4, is followed in verses 5 to 8 with an elaboration upon the Lord's vengeance upon her and recompensing her for her sins, paying her back double for her sins. Remember, if we... If you remember when we read that. But here he's telling them to come out from them because judgment's coming upon them. I can't help but think of the imagery of Lot's wife. Flee Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because judgment's coming upon them. And the problem was she didn't come out. She came out physically, but she didn't come out mentally or spiritually. Her heart was left where? In Sodom and Gomorrah. And I think this is just a a strong warning to Christians 
not to leave your heart back in Babylon, the great harlot. Don't go back. Why? Because you belong to him. He's purchased you. He's redeemed you. He's adopted you. He's forgiven you. But also don't go back. Why? Because judgment's coming upon her. You have the same thing. By the way, if you look at verse 37, Babylon shall become a heap, a dwelling place for jackals, etc. If you remember, that's, that's almost verbatim in, of, of how Babylon is described in Revelation 18.2. You know, if we took the time and just read through this whole chapter, you'd be amazed at the similarities and the parallels. But look at 45. My people go out of the midst of her. It's an exhortation. And let everyone deliver himself from the fierce anger of the Lord. This sounds very similar, doesn't it? My people. Come out of her, my people. And let everyone deliver himself from the fierce anger of the Lord. Why go back to a doomed city? It doesn't make sense, does it? I think it sounds very akin to these words, which we'll close with, Ephesians 5 and 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, and the, these things refers to the list of sins in the previous verses, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And then notice this application in Ephesians 5, 7. Therefore, do not be sharers. Do not have fellowship. Same word. Do not be partakers. The same word that we find back in Revelation 18, 4. Therefore, do not be sharers or partakers with them. Why? Why? Why are the Ephesians told, uh, exhorted not to go back and become partakers with the world and their sin? Because the judgment of God is coming upon them. And so this is exactly what we find in Revelation 18. And verse 4, come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, unless you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. God has remembered them, and he's going to repay them, verse 6 to 8, in turn or in kind. Now, we've loosely covered all the way to verse 19. And that will leave verse 20 and following for next week, because... The, the verse 20 and following really goes neatly with the first uh, part of, verse, of chapter 19. Because we're told to rejoice. Rejoice over her, verse 20, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. So we find the response of the church to this terrible fall of Babylon the Great. And that would take us into chapter 19. We'll cover that very quickly, God willing, next week because we want to focus mostly on what's most dominant in chapter 19 and that is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And uh, that, will, that will be considered next week. But in the meanwhile, we have to close this time of devotion by singing a hymn and I want to sing hymn 260.